The US dollar has a lot of power in the global economy, and this gives the United States government significant political power. In fact, many of the international financial institutions we have today were built around the dollar being the global reserve currency. And it is true that the dollar is the most popular currency used in international trade and investment and is also held by many central banks around the world in their foreign exchange reserves. However, more and more countries around the world are seeking alternatives to the dollar as part of a global movement known as de-dollarization. Many countries are doing trade, bilateral trade with other countries in their own local currencies. They're promoting investment in local currencies instead of the dollar. They're giving out loans in local currencies instead of foreign currencies. And even central banks are diversifying their foreign exchange reserves and holding other currencies and other assets. This financial diversification is part of the increasingly multipolar world we live in. It's not only multipolar politically, but also economically. And in fact, these developments go hand in hand because it is largely regional blocks that are creating these new institutions. So for instance, the most well-known example would be BRICS founded by Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. BRICS or BRICS Plus is discussing the use of local currencies in bilateral trade between members. The BRICS New Development Bank is giving out loans and other currencies. And further down the road in the future, there are discussions of potentially creating a new reserve currency to challenge the dollar. ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, is going through a similar process creating new financial mechanisms for trade and local currencies. They're also creating new interbank messaging systems for the region so the banks in the different countries in Southeast Asia can be connected. And once again, this is part of them trying to diversify their financial architecture so they're not so heavily dependent on the dollar and on the Western-dominated financial institutions, especially at a time when the United States and the European Union are imposing more and more sanctions on countries all around the world. In Latin America, we see a similar process with institutions like UNASUR that are discussing creating potentially a new currency for the region or also promoting the use of their local currencies in bilateral trade. Now, this process is very slow and gradual. People who claim the dollar is going to become toilet paper and lose all its value overnight or next week, they're being very hyperbolic, but it is a process that is without a doubt happening. It's happening right now. It's not just hypothetical. And equally absurd are the people on the other side who claim there is no de-dollarization and the dollar is infinitely powerful and can never be challenged. It's funny, actually, because it's common to hear financial analysts in the United States and U.S. politicians claim that the dollar will always be king. And yet we've seen, for instance, the U.S. Congress has held a special session specifically devoted to discussing de-dollarization and the threat that it could pose to the hegemony of the U.S. currency. I actually did a separate video about the congressional hearing on de-dollarization. I will link to that in the description below. We've also seen reports from very mainstream financial institutions like the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, which are dominated politically by the United States, which is the only country with veto power in the IMF. But they have acknowledged that de-dollarization is happening. Again, it's gradual, it's slow, but it is absolutely happening. 
In early 2022, the IMF published a working paper titled The Stealth Erosion of Dollar Dominance, in which they acknowledged that the share of the U.S. dollar in the foreign exchange reserves held by central banks all around the world has been declining in the past two decades. In 2000, the U.S. dollar made up more than 70% of the foreign exchange reserves in central banks around the world. And as of 2021, that figure had fallen to just 59%, and it continues to decline. In fact, the IMF claimed this was a stealth erosion, and maybe it was in the last 20 years. But with the proxy war in Ukraine and the Western sanctions on Russia, that erosion in dollar dominance is no longer stealthy. It's blatant because it's very clear what's happening. The United States and the European Union seized, that is, they stole more than $300 billion of assets in Russia's central bank foreign exchange reserves that were located in foreign banks. And the U.S. also seized the foreign exchange reserves of the central banks of Iran, of Afghanistan, of Venezuela. And now many countries around the world, including countries that have historically been Western allies, are afraid they could be the next one to have their foreign exchange reserves essentially stolen by the Western powers. So they're all trying to diversify the assets that they hold. In fact, some top economists have argued that the dollar share in global foreign exchange reserves is even smaller than the IMF estimates. Stephen Jen, a currency expert who was a managing director at Morgan Stanley, estimated that in 2022, the US dollar's share of global reserves fell down to 47%. This is the first time it has been under half in many decades. This reflects the fact that many countries are seeking alternatives to the U.S. hegemonic currency. And today I'm going to be looking at a very unique new way that central banks and countries around the world are trying to de-dollarize. This is a topic that is very misunderstood, and today I'm going to explain why it's an interesting development. I'm going to be talking about central bank digital currencies, also known by the acronym CBDC. What is this? Well, basically, it's a very simple idea that average people can have bank accounts at the central bank of their country and cut out the middleman of the private commercial banks that, of course, are operating to make a profit. Now, for people who don't know, the central bank is the institution that controls the money supply of a country. It can print more money or reduce the money supply by raising interest rates or buying or selling securities in markets, or it can change the reserve requirements that banks that hold their reserves at the central bank are required to hold. The most powerful central bank in the world is the U.S. Federal Reserve, and it gets its power from the fact that it controls the supply of dollars in the world. Private banks actually can make money every time they give you a loan. They're technically creating money. But the Federal Reserve has significantly more control over the U.S. dollar. And that means that one of its primary goals is controlling inflation. Technically, the Fed has a so-called dual mandate. And in according to law, the Federal Reserve is supposed to maintain monetary policy in order to have price stability and maximum employment in order to reduce unemployment. But in reality, the Federal Reserve, especially in the neoliberal era, 
has just been about maintaining price stability and trying to keep inflation very low. Today, the way the system works is that the central bank is the banker's bank. So if you own a big private bank like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, where do you bank? Well, the big private commercial banks, they have to hold their reserves in the central bank. And that's true for countries around the world. Well, the idea of a CBDC is that average people can simply have bank accounts with a digital currency that is held with the central bank. It's basically a public bank. This is an idea that is being explored by almost every single central bank on earth in almost every single country. And there are a variety of reasons why. One of them is because this is a way for countries to defend their monetary sovereignty and to de-dollarize. It could be a way to encourage more trade and more investment in local currencies and not just the dollar. In fact, this is exactly what the IMF acknowledged in a report that was published this September. It noted that 93% of central banks around the world are exploring central bank digital currencies and 58% report that they are likely to or might possibly issue a retail CBDC in the short or medium term. When they say retail CBDC, they mean for average people to use. So basically you have your own personal bank account with the central bank. And furthermore, more than 100 countries are exploring retail CBDC issuance and several central banks have already launched pilots or even issued a CBDC. What are the impacts of this new technology? Well, as the IMF acknowledges, one, it could actually decrease the profits of big commercial for-profit banks. And two, it could also help with de-dollarization as the IMF wrote in its report, quote, CBDCs offer a safe store of value and efficient means of payment, which can increase competition for deposit funding, increase bank share of wholesale funding, and lower bank profits. It noted as well, in dollarized or euroized economies, or in economies where the adoption of crypto assets is widespread, the introduction of CBDCs could also encourage a greater use of the local currency, particularly in lieu of other forms of digital money denominated in foreign currency or crypto assets. That is, it can help with de-dollarization and decryptoization. In fact, there are already some countries that are experimenting with the use of CBDCs in order to de-dollarize their trade with other nations. One example is called M-Bridge. This is a system that was created using blockchain technology by the central banks of China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and the United Arab Emirates. Of course, quick note for people who don't know, Hong Kong is part of China. It's known as a special administrative region. But the reason it has a different central bank is because Hong Kong was a British colony until 1997 and as part of the agreement of reintegrating into the People's Republic of China, Hong Kong and China agreed to a system they know as one country, two systems. So Hong Kong was able to maintain the capitalist system it had under British colonialism and China maintains its sovereign socialist system. So they have separate central banks, but Hong Kong is politically part of the People's Republic of China. And in this new project, Embridge, 
the central banks of Hong Kong and China, as well as the central banks of Thailand and the UAE, are working on using central bank digital currencies to process cross-border payments in multiple currencies. So each country can use its local sovereign currency for trade and investment and other opportunities, and they can cut out the middleman of the private intermediary banks, which are often based in the United States or other Western countries. And of course, they can also cut out the middleman of the US dollar or another currency. This technology is not just something that could happen in the future. It is already happening right now. This January, the United Arab Emirates completed its first ever cross-border payment using a central bank digital currency. And this was in a payment to China that was worth $13.6 million. Yahoo Finance noted that this historic transaction was facilitated through the Mbridge platform, which connects the central banks of mainland China, Hong Kong, the UAE, and Thailand. And there are more than 25 observing members of countries around the world. And Yahoo Finance noted that this platform helps to safeguard currency sovereignty. So what we're seeing already is that China and its trading partners are finding ways to sanctions proof their trade. This was exactly the conclusion of a Bloomberg article that was published by the Japan Times. It noted that with the Embridge blockchain technology, China challenges US dollar dominance using central bank digital currencies in order to facilitate de-dollarization to challenge the hegemony of the US dollar and to prevent Washington from trying to sanction China in the same way that the US and the EU have sanctioned Russia and tried to prevent Russia from trading with its trading partners. And as I will discuss later, Wall Street, big private banks in the US are lobbying hard against central bank digital currencies, not only because it will help other countries avoid US sanctions, but also because it will likely lead to them losing many of their customers because private banks get away with paying most of their customers basically nothing, something like 0.02% interest on their savings accounts. And if there is an option for a retail CBDC and people can hold their savings in the central bank, they can get paid much higher interest. This is an important issue that I will explore later, but the point to take away is that wealthy oligarchs, big financial capitalists on Wall Street are against this idea. They're lobbying hard against this idea along with the U.S. State Department. As Bloomberg, the U.S. media outlet, put it, quote, the digital yuan challenge to U.S. dollar dominance in $7 trillion of daily foreign exchange flows is dashing ahead thanks to blockchain-enabled Embridge project. A report published by the Bank for International Settlements in 2022 acknowledged that this Embridge strategy of central banks using digital currencies connected through blockchain technology could, quote, support the use of local currencies in international transactions and also, quote, safeguard currency sovereignty and monetary and financial stability. So I think this is a significant reason why CBDCs have been really demonized 
especially in the United States and some other Western countries, they do offer alternatives for countries largely in the global south to experiment with using their own local currencies instead of always being so dependent on the U.S. dollar and also on the U.S. banking system and on international financial institutions like, for instance, the SWIFT interbank messaging system, which is based in Belgium and basically controlled by the U.S. government. And Western powers can use these institutions to try to basically kick out foreign countries from accessing the international financial institutions. We saw this, for instance, with Russia. With the proxy war in Ukraine, the Western powers disconnected many Russian banks from the SWIFT interbank messaging system. And the U.S. did the same thing to Venezuela as part of the U.S. coup attempt and blockade against Venezuela's leftist government. Now, to be fair, another popular criticism that we hear of the idea of central bank digital currencies, especially from libertarians in the West, is that this can be used for surveillance. And that's certainly true. It could be used for surveillance. However, we should put a big asterisk here. There already is mass surveillance in the financial system as it exists. The U.S. government doesn't need central bank digital currencies to monitor people's spending behavior. They already do that. The difference now is that it is done by private banks, private for-profit corporations that are collaborating with the U.S. government. And there's a symbiotic relationship between the government and the private for-profit banks. I mean, how many Goldman Sachs executives have gone to the U.S. Treasury or to the Federal Reserve? Again, there's a revolving door there. It's some of the same people involved on both sides. And already, the U.S. government, for instance, by imposing sanctions, it often freezes the private bank accounts that foreigners have in private banks in the U.S. And especially now, as most people do their banking online with like a phone app or on a website, I mean, all of that is being monitored clearly. And banks also have regulations and policies like anti-money laundering. So the surveillance argument, I think, doesn't really hold up because Really, the system we have now is just as surveilled. That's not the right question. The question is, should the private corporate for-profit banks be able to have a stranglehold on the banking system or should there be a public option? That's what the idea of central bank digital currencies could propose. I mean, it's similar to the idea of a public option for healthcare. You don't have to have the government healthcare. You can get private healthcare, but you're guaranteed this service by the state. And in that sense, CBDCs can be a step, a gradual step toward essentially nationalizing the banking sector. Now, in some countries like China, for instance, the banking sector is almost entirely nationalized. All of the big banks are owned by the state and they're not run to simply make profits. They're run to provide financing for development, to lift people out of poverty, to build infrastructure, to create productive economic activity that actually helps pr provide goods and services for people in their everyday lives. Whereas in the United States, it's the exact opposite. The U.S. banking system is entirely dominated and controlled by private for-profit banks like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs. They have trillions of dollars in assets. And of course, it's the worst of both worlds because they make all their profits privately. They go into the, the hands of corporate executives and shareholders. And yet 
whenever they're in trouble, they get bailed out by the government. So all of the risk is socialized. All of the costs of bailing them out are socialized and all of the profits are privatized. And I think this is actually another significant reason why there is so much demonization of central bank digital currencies in the US. It's because there's a lot of lobbying by the private banks. It could really hurt their bottom line. The IMF admitted this in its report published this September. It noted that CBDCs can increase competition for deposit funding, which could lead to lower bank profits. It's very easy to explain. If you have the public option of holding your savings in the central bank, then the private for-profit banks are going to have to find a way to incentivize you to instead hold your savings with them. And in order to do that, they're going to be pressured to raise the interest payments on the deposits that you hold at their bank. Now, today, the interest rates that the private banks pay on deposits are laughably low. In fact, the average rate is about 0.4%, and that is significantly below inflation. So if you're just holding your money in a savings account in a commercial bank, you're actually losing wealth over time because inflation is higher than the interest the bank is paying you on your deposit. And that 0.4% is the average. I mean, there are still many banks that are only paying 0.2% on savings accounts. This is even more ridiculous when you consider the fact that in the past year, the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, has been aggressively raising interest rates at the fastest pace in decades. As of September, the federal funds rate was at 5.33%. This is the interest rate at which the private banks that hold their reserves in the central bank the rate that they charge each other in order to borrow each other's reserves. So if a private bank has excess reserves in the Fed, they can lend that money from their reserves to another private bank overnight, and they'll be charged 5.33% interest. So the private banks are making more and more on interest payments, and yet they have barely raised the interest payments that they actually give to average depositors, people like you and me. So the way the system exists, at least in the U.S., not in a socialist country like China, where the banking system is run by the state on behalf of the people, not on behalf of big corporate oligarchs, and the U.S. banking system, which is dominated by these colossal banks that are deemed too big to fail, you already have the same kind of tyrannical system that libertarians warn about, but instead of the state being the tyrannical system, it's large corporations, monopolies, oligopolies. They already have the authoritarian system that, we, that libertarians always warn about. The difference is that the financial system is largely held in private hands. And by the way, a lot of money creation is done privately by the commercial banks. Because when you go to a private bank, and you deposit your money in your savings account or checking account in the bank, the bank doesn't hold all of that cash in its reserves. Instead, the bank takes your deposit and they invest it in some kind of interest-bearing asset because if they just hold the dollars or the euros or whatever currency over time, it will depreciate in value because of inflation. Usually they end up investing in government debt, which is bonds, but there are many other forms of investments they make, including other securities and stocks. And with the other part of the money that you put in your deposit, in your bank account, they lend that out to other people to use as a loan. So 
if you look at the balance sheet of a bank, your asset as a customer, which is your bank account, is the deposit, right? And the deposit is the liability of the bank. If you go to the bank, the bank has to pay you that money. So for the bank, that's a liability. However, when they lend your money in your deposit to another customer in the form of a mortgage so they can buy a house, suddenly the loan that that bank gives becomes an asset for the bank and it becomes a liability for the person who borrowed from the bank. And of course, many customers, when they take out the loan, the mortgage from the bank, it's actually larger than the money that they're holding in their deposit. So actually they're indebted to the bank and the bank is profiting from you. Now they're doing this to make profit, right? That's the goal of the private commercial bank. But if you do everything through the central bank, the idea is it would provide much more competition in the banking system. I mean, unless you're just going to nationalize the banking system, which is what China did, which has worked much better for the Chinese economy. But if you're still going to maintain the system with private banks lending for profit, well, if you can have a public option and open a bank account with the central bank and in a central bank digital currency, the private banks are going to be forced to find a way to incentivize you to hold your savings at the bank to take loans from those banks so they're going to give you more favorable interest rates. That's exactly why the IMF explained that central bank digital currencies could lower bank profits. And of course, they're talking about private commercial banks. Now, another advantage is that they simply provide more stability. And this is especially clear at a time in the United States where this year, in 2023, three of the largest bank crashes in U.S. history have happened in this year. The other biggest bank crash was back in 2008 in the financial crisis. So that was another very clear example of what happens when the private for-profit banks engage in very risky, irresponsible behavior. They over-leverage themselves and they make basically huge bets. They have, they hold billions or trillions of dollars in derivatives that are just essentially bets. They have significantly more bets than they actually hold in all of their assets. And then when their bets go wrong, one bank collapses and it could be like a series of dominoes. And then other banks collapse and you could have another massive financial crisis. Well, as the IMF acknowledged in its report, central bank digital currencies offer a safe store of value unlike bank deposits and other liabilities of private financial institutions, which are subject to credit and liquidity risk and the possibility of bank failures, CBDC would not carry such risks. And here we see another example of this hypocrisy where anytime a private commercial bank in the U.S. fails, it's almost always bailed out often by the Federal Reserve, which prints billions of dollars in order to lend, give emergency lending to these banks to help provide liquidity so they can save these banks, prop them up so they can pay their depositors because, of course, there's often a run on the bank. People who have their savings account at the bank, they want to get their money out. In many cases, these are wealthy depositors and their deposits at the bank and their account are significantly higher than the federally insured limit of $250,000. And we saw this year with bank collapses, like for instance, the, the crash of Silicon Valley Bank or First Republic Bank, that the US government helped to bail out billionaires and big corporations that had billions of dollars in deposits that were not insured federally, and yet the government still bailed them out. So the US already has a system that is 
again, fully privatized, and yet the profits are privatized, but the risk is socialized. Anytime there is instability, the government steps in to bail out all of these rich people. So why should there not be a public option? And that's what central bank digital currencies could offer. And finally, this brings me back to the main topic of discussion today, which is how this new technology could help countries de-dollarize. As the IMF wrote in its report, quote, in dollarized or euroized economies, the introduction of a CBDC could encourage a greater use of the local currency in lieu of dollars or euros by making the local currency a more attractive means of payment. Thus, the CBDC could also help maintain monetary sovereignty and sustain the demand for central bank money. With greater monetary autonomy, monetary policy transmission will be stronger through all channels. I want to emphasize two important terms in that paragraph. One, monetary sovereignty. They could help maintain monetary sovereignty. And another, they could provide greater monetary autonomy. Those are the crucial terms, sovereignty and autonomy. That's why I think there is this demonization of this new technology that is already being used by countries like China, because it's clear that if countries have monetary sovereignty and autonomy, they will not be as dependent on the U.S. dollar. And if countries are no longer as dependent on the U.S. dollar, Washington can't try to destroy their economies with sanctions. It can't try to cut them out of international financial institutions like the SWIFT interbank messaging system. It can't try to cut off international trade and investment in their economies. Yes, there definitely are some downsides, including the possibility of surveillance. But again, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of this argument because we already see that countries that are, have completely privatized banking systems like the U.S., their government still uses the private banks to spy on everyone and still when they impose sanctions and freeze people's bank accounts, it doesn't matter that your bank account was held with a private bank. Again, it's the worst of both worlds. It's the, the mass surveillance, but with privatized profits and socialized losses and risk. And earlier I mentioned the M-Bridge system using blockchain technology that was created by the central banks of China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and the UAE. I want to look back at a report that was published last year by the Bank for International Settlements. It noted that, quote, cross-border payments using a common platform based on distributed ledger technology, DLT, that is the most common form of that is blockchain. Blockchain is a form of distributed ledger technology. This cross-border payment system would allow multiple central banks to issue and exchange their respective central bank digital currencies. This can greatly increase the potential for international trade flows and cross-border business. This led China, Thailand, and the UAE to create custom-designed and developed native blockchain technology, which they refer to as the M-Bridge ledger. And over six weeks in August and September 2022, 20 commercial banks from the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region of China, along with mainland China, the UAE, and Thailand, conducted payment and foreign exchange payment versus payment transactions on behalf of their corporate clients using the central bank digital currencies 
issued on the Embridge platform by their respective central banks. Over 12 million US dollars was issued on the platform, although they're measuring this in US dollars because, you know, this is the Bank for International Settlements, but they were not using US dollars. They were using each region, so Hong Kong, mainland China, the UAE, and Thailand, they were all using their local sovereign currencies in order to process these payments. They facilitated over 160 payments and foreign exchange payment versus payment transactions, totaling more than 22 million US dollars in value. So this is already happening. We're seeing this is not this is not hypothetical. This is being developed and not only by China, not only by Thailand and the UAE. There are other countries all around the world that are looking into using this technology to to diversify their international trade and investment. The report pointed out that every year China, Thailand and the UAE do hundreds of billions of dollars of trade with each other, and yet the majority of that trade is settled in foreign currencies, largely the US dollar. And the report notes that this is despite the deepening intra-regional economic ties and supply chain integration over recent decades. So I'm going to read this long paragraph here and explain some of the main points because this is very important. The Bank for International Settlements noted, quote, local currencies play limited roles in international trade owing in part to the relatively high transaction costs associated with most Asian currencies compared with those of major currencies. When they say major currencies, they mean, you know, the US dollar and the euro, the hegemonic currencies. So it's expensive and difficult for countries to use their local currencies for trade with each other. So this dependence on foreign currencies for cross-border payments could inadvertently impact monetary sovereignty. Now, I wouldn't use the word inadvertently. In some cases, it is advertent because the U.S. wants these countries to be dependent on the use of the U.S. dollar. That's exactly how the U.S. can use sanctions as a weapon against so many countries. But anyway, let me continue here. The dependence on foreign currencies for cross-border payments could inadvertently impact monetary sovereignty through monetary policy spillovers from the currency originating jurisdiction. What they mean there is that anytime the Federal Reserve carries out policies on, on behalf of the United States, so for instance, if it raises interest rates in order to bring down inflation, which is what we've seen the Fed do in the past year, that means that it's going to have ripple effects in countries all around the world because by raising interest rates, it makes it more expensive to get access to dollars and that hurts many other countries that rely on getting access to dollars in order to settle international trade, balance of payments issues, or they need dollars to import commodities like energy, oil or gas, or capital goods, machine parts, food. They need to get access to dollars. And because the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates, it makes it more expensive to get access to those dollars. Or it also leads to capital flight because people who have invested in other countries, they will actually withdraw their capital and invest it in the United States with the rising interest rates. So then that, that forces other countries to raise their interest rates as well. And that means that when those central banks and other currencies raise their interest rates, it also makes it more expensive to lend. It increases the cost of borrowing money, which reduces the overall money supply, and it often causes recessions and economic problems. So that means that the U.S., because of the power of the dollar, 
exports its own domestic monetary policy to the rest of the world. This is known as the Trithins paradox. So here in this report, the Bank for International Settlements is pointing out that being dependent on the US dollar causes monetary policy spillovers from the currency originating jurisdiction like the US. And furthermore, it also adds more intermediaries and steps to the overall process. So it makes it more complicated. Whereas if you're just doing everything in your local currencies through your central banks, it's much quicker, it's much easier. So the report provided an example. They wrote, say there's a payment between a Thai company that is importing goods from a mainland Chinese company and they're using a foreign currency as the invoicing currency. So this would be very common. This would be a company in Thailand wants to import products from China, say phones from the Chinese phone maker Xiaomi. So when they do this transaction, the Thai importer invoices that transaction in dollars. So essentially they have to pay in dollars. So what that means is that the bank that the Thai company uses in Thailand and the bank that is in mainland China of the exporter that is selling the phones and the correspondent banks that each bank used by the Thai bank and the Chinese banks have to use. We're talking about four different banks here. They all have to process the payment and convert those currencies into US dollars. Not only is this very complicated, but it also strengthens the US dollar because anytime you go to a foreign exchange market and you exchange your currency for the dollar, you're actually depreciating your currency against the US dollar, which is appreciating in value, strengthening the US dollar, helping the United States in the process. The report pointed out that additional complexities are involved if the Thai and Chinese banks that are used by the companies are small local banks and they have no direct correspondent network, in which case they might have to work with even more intermediaries. So if it's a small local bank in Thailand that doesn't have a relationship with a US bank, they have to work with a larger bank in Thailand that, that does have a relationship with a big bank, usually you know a, a New York-based bank. So now you're adding a fifth bank to this process. And the report pointed out, with multiple banks along the payment chain, transaction fees can be charged. So that means that, that the cost of doing trade is becoming even higher. And furthermore, there are also regulations like Know Your Customer, KYC, or also Anti-Money Laundering, AML, or also Counter-Terrorist Financing, CTF checks. These are very common. Many banks implement these policies. And each bank involved in the transaction might engage in this, which can cause numerous breakpoints. So this is how complicated it is for countries that are geographically close to each other or even neighbors to trade with each other. Think about how difficult it is. Why should two countries in Asia that are very close to each other or neighbors, why should they have to go through the US banking system? Why should four, five, six, even more banks have to be involved? in this very simple transaction. One way of cutting out all of those middlemen and all of the fees they charge, all of the red tape, is simply facilitating local trade in local currencies. And one way of doing that is simply using central bank digital currencies, 
on a system like the blockchain-based Mbridge system that China has helped to develop. And then if the country has balance of payments issues, like for instance, it has a current account deficit, it ends up importing more than its exports, and it needs to get access to more foreign currency in order to deal with those imbalances, well, then the central bank can deal with that issue, right? But if you just cut out all the middlemen, not only does it simplify the process, not only does it make it cheaper and faster for, for firms in different countries to trade with each other, but it's also a way of challenging the hegemony of the US dollar. I mean, this is a win-win for every country involved except the United States, of course, which is why I think, once again, there is so much propaganda demonizing the idea of central bank digital currencies and why, again, the private commercial banks in the US, JP Morgan, Bank of America, that's why they're lobbying so much against CBDCs. So the next time you hear, you know, a libertarian talk about CBDCs are an authoritarian plot for the government to control everything that we do and monitor all the payments that we do. I mean, if you're using credit cards, if you're using digital banking systems and apps and websites, I mean, they're already doing that. But the difference is that the private banks are making profits on it in, in the process. I mean, the, the banking system is in private hands and they're the ones profiting and average people are the ones losing out. So I think this is a very interesting technological development and it's another example of this move toward multipolarity, not only in the international political system, but also increasingly in the international economic order. And finally, as I explained earlier, this is not some pie in the sky idea. This is already happening. China and its trading partners are already using digital currencies, CBDCs, in order to settle imbalances in their balance of payments. And this could make it very difficult in the future for the US to try to impose more sanctions on China and carry out a kind of economic war like the economic war that the West has been waging against Russia. And as always, here at Geopolitical Economy Report, these are the issues we are going to be analyzing and exploring. I'm Ben Norton. I want to thank everyone for joining me today. Please subscribe on whatever platform you're watching or listening on. If this is YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. It helps to promote our material in the algorithm. Also, please share. And if you are listening as a podcast version, because for people watching, if you don't know, Every video is available also as a podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast as well. And thank you for joining me. I'll be back very soon. See you next time.